From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. This is Jesse Zerowell and Perspective on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Welcome to Perspective. I'm Jesse Zerwell, your host for the hour. Back with me today is independent writer, researcher, Michael Bryant. You can find his work at a number of outlets, including 21st Century Wire, Global Research, Planet Waves, Off Guardian, and a host of others. I should also add that he is a longtime activist as well. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on again, Jesse. Absolutely. So in the past, you and I have had a number of conversations about health freedom, to put it very generally. We've talked about the predatory nature of vaccination, the predatory nature of the narrative built up around the never proven to exist SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19 and the predatory nature of the operation rolled out using that as a basis. But we haven't touched too much upon what I would put very simplistically as foreign policy. And I know that that is an area where you've focused a lot of your work, your activism work, And so I'd like to speak with you about the war on Gaza that has been taking place since October 7th, the latest iteration of the war on Gaza. As we both know, it's been going on for much longer than that. And by way of getting into our conversation, I'd like to ask you for your overview of what's been happening there in Gaza and also in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. Um, I, you know, I come at this with my background in the anti-globalization movement and um, the anti-war movement, not not just the the Iraq war, but also uh, the dismantling of Yugoslavia and and any number of things that we could we could cite. And so. Um, I would say that my view of it is based on a real, uh, quite a broad lens that that takes all of this into, puts all of this into a geopolitical context and uh, a historical context. And I don't um, isolate it as just this specific um, incident, though there are, it's it's worth um, highlighting specifics of this incident, this instance. Um, so my my overview is um, essentially we are we are at a, what I would say a late a late stage capitalism, and this system is uh, undergoing a nonstop series of rather significant crises, and to address these crises. It is uh, implementing these rather large operations, of, of which this is one. Uh, I don't s- see this um, as just simply 
um, the a, a war on Gaza, if you will. Um, uh, this is um, imperialism. This is um, you know colonial conquest, um, and it is coming at a time when um, Western hegemony um, is being challenged. And it's it's being challenged in many different sectors. Um, the energy sector is but one of them. And um, I see it as, you know, we have, I guess my an analogy is we have a variety of uh, mafia dons who are um, battling over turf, over territory, over resources. Um, and uh, Gaza happens to be not just sitting on adjacent to, uh, in control of some very valuable resources at, at this point in history, but is also at a, a strategic point um, for trade and commerce and for uh, setting up shop, if you will, to further balkanize the region. With regard to what happened on October 7, I listened to your appearance recently on my TNT colleague, Patrick Henningsen's program, and you several times suggested that what happened on October 7th was possibly a false flag. And I'm still questioning what exactly happened on October 7th, while realizing that there is a very real and a very long running anti-colonial struggle, anti-imperialist anti struggle that Palestinians have been undertaking for over a hundred years, but that's not to say that that can't be played upon to create a crisis event. Whomever's responsible for creating it. Can you talk a little bit about what you think? And I realize that neither of us knows exactly what happened on October 7th we know what's been, what we've been allowed to see, what we've been able to uncover beyond what we've been allowed to see. But the long and the short of my question is, do you think this was, do you think what happened on October 7 was a false flag of some sort? Yeah, what I'd say to that is that um, I, I too am struggling to clearly understand and define precisely um, what happened. And maybe it's going to be a while before we get more information and um, see more pieces of the puzzle to, to know. And maybe we will never get those pieces of the puzzle. Um, what lends me towards believing that um, this was facilitated or allowed to happen or um, in, ignited in some ways by 
some internal agitators possibly is that it's hard for me to see what the the long-term perspective strategic um goals could be from such an operation at this time for hamas whereas it's much clearer for me to see what the um motivations and policy objectives would be for uh, Israel, the United States, the United Kingdom, and other multinational investors to have this incident um, become inflamed, ignite this incident, um, allow this incident to become grander and portray this incident to be grander than in than than what it was that that makes more sense to me um having said that i um i can't say that uh i would i would bet the house on it and i, I think we'll we'll find more as we go um right if if it weren't if it weren't this if it weren't you know a, a false flag or an, an operation allowed to spread its tentacles further than perhaps originally intended. Um, I think at, at this point, there would have been some other um, event that would have been concocted at this, at this point in history um, to really allow um, much wider forces uh, maybe, maybe even including, you know, some UN type forces or NATO type forces to, to get into the region and, um, you know, under the guise of classic peacekeeping missions, and um, quote unquote stabilize the region, you know, for for the benefit of multinational corporations. I that's that to me was was always on the chalkboard. Well, that's increasingly becoming a part of the conversation now. The what's come to be known in the corporate media vernacular as the day after conversation in terms of reconstruction of a polarized Gaza. And I think very likely to be an ethnically cleansed Gaza, although the people there are hanging on to their homes, their refugee open air prison homes as much as possible, because such is the way of the Palestinians in terms of their steadfastness, in terms of their dignity, in terms of the strength of their resistance, whether they're fighters or whether they're ordinary people. But there's a big push coming from a lot of angles about already about what do we do the day after? Well, the genocide is still in progress. And in that conversation, from many angles as well, there's a lot of talk about the international community, whatever that means needing to be needing to play a leading role in the reconstruction of gaza and 
there's nothing I've heard in that conversation or very little at most about what do the Palestinian people want in terms of their future. So it seems like if plans aren't already underway for multinational development, and that's to put it mildly, or reconstruction of Gaza, the conversation around that is ramping up and what that will entail. I shudder to think based on the record of UN so-called peacekeeping forces, we can look at MINUSTA in Haiti, for example, or the peacekeeping force that is still occupying the Congo. And then in terms of impact investors who have their enterprises tied to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and and what impact investing and redevelopment under the banner of impact investing entails. And also in terms of what sorts of technologies and architecture will be put in place in this reconstruction. We know that Israel is very big into so-called fourth industrial revolution technology. It's very big in the Web3 space, as is the UAE, as is Saudi and several other Gulf Cooperation Council countries. And I suspect that if the so-called international community gets its way, we're going to see a reconstruction effort much like the one that is planned and in some cases being carried out in Ukraine, where you essentially essentially have a biosecurity, biosurveillance state. Yeah, um, I'd agree with with most all of that. Uh, that's there. There are a uh, wide range of interests, uh, a confluence of um, objectives that that are happening here, and the one of the essential pieces. Well, one of the things in the way are the people who live there, and they they wish to ethnically cleanse them they wish to eradicate them um so i guess before we may go into some of the um items relating to the um resources or projects that we're referencing there is um a couple of other pieces to the puzzle relating to october 7th that immediately were red flags for myself. Um, and I, you know, the, the very first day, the very first moments, I, I hearkened back to Iraq and the knowledge that um, what was re- happening in the um, media space surrounding Iraq, uh, ink babies and incubators, uh, you know, um, yellow cake and all these um, bald faced lies were big. The babies, the babies, the babies at incubators was the first Gulf War, just to clarify for anybody 
Yeah, that was who might not know. That was and Iraq won. Yes, as we call it. Yeah. And, um, now, and now we and now we have actual Palestinian babies who have been stripped of their incubators and oxygen and are dying in Al Shifa Hospital, and there's no clamor from Kuwaiti ambassador daughters to do anything about this. Right. So um, all you know, all the while that we're we're getting um, bombarded with these media narratives for how how long i mean a decade um relating to iraq saddam hussein and any number of stories that we could bring out there what was behind it were these large pr companies hill and knowlton so they you know they hire them to to do these things um and then they do they do photo ops they do shoots they do you know phony interviews they do and any number of things that we could we could list off here so that is that is where my mind went immediately when they started uh, bringing up the beheaded babies um, and so to my mind that put put out a red flag that this is an operation that is being executed um not such a just a clean cut military operation by Hamas but an operation that is um being manipulated in certain ways um by by outside forces so i'll i'll leave that there another piece of the puzzle is um in 1999 the palestinian authority um awarded british gas a the exploration license for the entire marine area offshore Gaza. And uh, British Gas had a 90% interest in that. And, and that's uh, that was a 25-year license. So that license is is getting set to expire. I don't have the exact date on it, but we're, you know, certainly within a year or two of that. And so they need to be able to act on it um, relatively soon and if they can't then that license expires um at the same time their their agreement was with the palestinian authority who was willing to play ball to a certain degree they wanted a they wanted to cut of the profits uh when hamas came to power hamas was not and that that reminded me quite clearly of um, when Saddam Hussein decided he was no longer going to deal with uh, Bechtel. And Donald Rumsfeld took a trip over there, and there's a famous picture of them shaking hands, um, and um, essentially to uh, re you know, negotiate these deals or at least get an assurance from Saddam Hussein or, or tell him, look, you agreed to this if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And uh, Saddam Hussein held fast and said that, no, we won't be, we won't be um, dealing with Bechtel. We're going to, to do this independent of Western multinational corporations and, and the rest is history, as they say. Um, and a final, just to put a fine point on this particular deal, the, uh, Hamas official Ismail Rudwan stated that uh, 
once Hamas is in power relating to the rights for these uh, oil and gas fields, we reaffirm that our people in Gaza have the rights to their natural resources. And so um, this is a similar situation. And this is, to my mind, why they they need to eradicate Hamas and, and get the Palestinian people out of there. And, you know, I would also say, regardless of what one th thinks of Hamas or how they view them as a political entity, and regardless of how they view what did or didn't happen on October 7th, some of this is really not even the issue. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, Israel is an occupying force. Israel is a uh, acting at, at the behest of or in a symbiotic relationship with uh, the U.S.-U.K. Dutch interests, um, a, a brutal genocidal entity that really has no rights to anything in this area. Right. Right. There's also Lebanese gas that's at stake, which is desperately needed in Lebanon, which has, is becoming more and more immiserated by the day. Syria also comes in to play here. We have Turkey as well. And unfortunately for, we have Egypt too. I should mention them. I should put them in there. Unfortunately, a lot of these countries have themselves over a barrel, as I've said on previous programs, and no pun intended, with regard to the Zionist entity, Israel, in terms of relying on Israel for their energy. So Egypt right now relies heavily on Israel for natural gas, as do Jordan. And there's a very good article about this that was published toward the end of September by Foreign Policy Research Institute titled A Long Hot Summer for Eastern Mediterranean Gas. And it points out that the earliest peace process partners, Israel, Egypt, and Jordan, have since 2020 added crucial long-term economic infrastructure component to their relations. Some 70% of Jordan's and a significant part of Egypt's electricity comes from Israeli gas. These supplies are anchored in multi-decade contracts based on the previous decade's low gas prices, which in the current gas market provides windfall savings for the two Arab partners. The article goes on to state that gas geoeconomics has strengthened the already emerging geopolitical alignment between Greece, Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, and the Gulf states. They have also enabled negotiations and agreements between ostensibly warring parties in Lebanon and Gaza, all of which is to say there are a lot of actors at play here. Some have some of whom have become very dependent on Israeli supplied energy. And Egypt, when it has an excess, sells some of that energy on to Europe. 
And we need to point out, I think, the Gulf states, particularly Saudi and the UAE's complicity, at the very least, with the Israeli regime on this regard and in other partnerships with so-called emerging technology. And also point out, too, that Qatar, which is being heralded by many as making headways into so-called negotiations, last month signed a 27-year LNG supply deal with Shell, and this is meant to supply liquefied natural gas to Europe through Rotterdam. And shortly after that, signed a 27-year LNG supply deal with Eni, which is a huge Italian entity. And this also to supply energy, liquefied natural gas energy to Europe. So lots of moving parts here in terms of the energy space and those fields, those gas fields offshore, which Israel is plundering, stealing from, which belong to the Palestinian, the Lebanese people, are very much in the mix here. And I want to get more into that with you because I know that's something that you've been looking at extensively. But before we do, let's take a quick pause and I'll be right back here with Michael Bryant here on TNT Radio after this. Stay tuned. Get ready. A kill switch could be coming to a vehicle near you and shut you down on the highway. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The United States Congress just passed a vehicle kill switch that will be required on all vehicles produced in 2026 and forward. This will allow the government to automatically disable your vehicle if, quote, impairment is detected. Here is Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey explaining why he introduced a bill to block it, which failed. It's so incredible that I have to offer this amendment. It almost sounds like the domain of science fiction, that the federal government would put a kill switch in vehicles that would be the judge, the jury, and the executioner on such a fundamental right as the right to travel freely. Imagine a future scenario where your vehicle shuts you down for not having the correct political views or for promoting public health misinformation. This is total control. This is the Great Reset in action. Reject the Great Reset. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative, this is Viewpoint. A former federal election official called the $400 million plus that Mark Zuckerberg spent to finance the local elections was a carefully orchestrated attempt to influence the 2020 vote and recommended that all states ban private funding of election offices. Hans von Spakovsky, a former Federal Election Commission member, said the billionaire Facebook founder's donations to a pair of non-profits that provided funding to nearly 2,500 counties in 49 states violated fundamental principles of equal treatment of voters since it may have led to unequal opportunities to vote in different areas of a state. This allowed the conversion of official government election offices 
into get out the vote operations for one political party and to insert political operatives into election offices to influence and manipulate the outcome of the election. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper! Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig. To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. This is Jesse Zerowell and Perspective on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Welcome back to Perspective here on TNT Radio, where we are live 24-7. I'm Jesse Zerwell, and I am speaking with independent writer, researcher, and activist Michael Bryant. Michael, before the pause, I was starting to get into, and you mentioned this before I started to get into it, but the vast energy troves that are at play here. And I know you've been looking at this extensively. So what are you seeing in terms of of the energy that is available here that is being extracted, particularly by Israel and has been for quite some time? What's your assessment of, of that those vast energy reserves in the Eastern Mediterranean. So in in addition to the um, resources that um, were discovered in Gaza in 1999, there was um, huge discoveries in in 2013. And um, those, those discoveries were primarily under in, in international law, they were primarily in territory that was uh, Palestine's Gaza and West Bank. This the vast majority of these um, resources were were not in Israeli territory. Okay, so to change that dynamic you're going to need either a compliant government or you're going to need to eliminate um, that that territory and the people in that territory. You're going to need to get them out of there. And that's that's a big part of what is happening at this point. At the same time, the, the companies, corporations that um, – are chomping at the bit to come in and further these explorations, develop these gas fields, are some of them that you listed that have already um, memorandum of understanding on these gas fields. They they want security assurances. And so those security assurances mean many things. Two of those things are that we will just be physically secure in that area to bring our engineers, to bring our equipment to, and so forth. The other, the other, and, and do our work to 
to develop these gas fields. The other is that we need to have political assurances that once we develop these oil fields, the, the contracts will um, be developed in the way that we want them to be developed and we will secure um, the rights um, to determine the economic positioning of these contracts as we see fit. And that's that second component is is probably more important even than the first one. They can undergo a little bit of instability um, uh, geographically and on the ground, but they 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 don't like instability uh, in the marketplace. So that's a big part of what is happening. And so you know this this objective is um, just to get the Palestinians out of their homeland and confiscate these these multi-billion, if not trillion dollar offshore natural gas reserves. Um, and they'll, as we're seeing, they will, they'll resort to all level of chicanery, uh, deception and barbarism to uh, accomplish these, these goals. And, um, you know, there's, uh, in addition to what you were talking about with all other Arab entities involved, um, e Egypt has already been involved in secret bilateral talks with Israel to, to be a main player in the extraction of this natural gas, which is off the coast of the Gaza Strip. Right. I look at that, what you just laid out, but I also ask myself too, what is this energy meant to be used for certainly for the powering of everyday life to put it in very general terms but i think it behooves us to look at israel and the uae and saudi in particular as these these test beds or maybe maybe even more of the so-called fourth industrial revolution and the emerging technology that is supposed to power and run this so-called next stage of capitalism. And I think that I try to go beyond just the goal being the securing of these resources and the contracts for control, but needing them to build out this larger capitalist infrastructure under the banner of the fourth industrial revolution to power the technologies that will not just be sold and pushed on us as part of that, but will be the technologies that will be used to run that infrastructure. So biometric surveillance, smart contracts, decentralized ledger technology. If you look at the Dubai metaverse strategy, it's very explicit about pursuing all of this. And of course, I take it with a grain of salt in terms of this being realizable, but they are going for it. I take it with a grain of salt in terms of this being realizable, but they are going for it. 
there are vast sums of foreign capital being invested into these projects, particularly in the UAE. And so, again, I think it's important that we look at that too, that it's not just control of energy resources for people to be able to go to cafes or light their apartments or heat their apartments and live in in bourgeois comfort it's controlling these resources to build something perhaps bigger and more insidious than what already exists i wonder if you've thought about that what you think about that yeah so it, if you're able to control these these resources if you're able to control the uh liquefied natural gas and in which direction it goes in who's who controls this contract who um is our favored trade partner you can control the policies of governments so if you want to um force them to sign off on um the united nations 2030 agenda for sustainable development for example okay well, you, you have a heck of a lot of leverage now. Um, if you control these resources and you control the energy, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that, you know, the U.S., uh, the, it, the 20th century version of the U.S. empire was built primarily on uh, um, copious amounts of cheap fossil fuel and pegging um, the world's currency to the dollar, the petrodollar. And if you're able to, and, and that is under threat right now, but if you're able to control policy in governments through this uh, me mechanism of controlling the resources, which they will or will not be able to get on the world's market um, based on whether they play ball with you or not, then you can maintain the petrodollar. Um, and I, I don't think that that's gonna happen um, for too many more decades, if even years, but um, that I believe, in my view, is also a rather significant aspect of this. Um, and I think that also brings us to, um, you know, the the huge project, the Ben Gurion Canal, um, which they wish to use as a rival to the Suez Canal as, as the major maritime route between Europe and Asia. And if they're able to control that, it's just it's, it's not just that 12% oh, of the global market goes through the Suez Canal every day. So, so now we're going to take some of that uh, market. Um, but what we are going to do then is we're going to um, um, be able to control the trade that goes through it, control um, the the way companies have or do not have access to this, and then uh, the the direction of that flow, the monetary aspects of it, all of it, and then you're able to control the policies of their of that government. And um, in 2019, there was this now, it's, it's been cited a fair amount in the last couple of weeks, this United Nations Conference on Trade and Development um, 
piece that spoke to the unrealized potential of Palestinian oil and gas reserves, as they called it. And there's a direct reference to what, what you were alluding to, where they state um, the amounts of oil, the amounts of recoverable natural gas, and um, put a price tag on it, and that these funds could, quote, finance socioeconomic development as part of the United Nations 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So they, they say it right there to you. So if you are, um, if you have looked into what the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development actually is, then that corroborates precisely what you said, that that is um, how they, they want this development plan to go and and um, what what the end game for this is, and it is mm -hmm. it is more than just heating homes, right? In terms of the Ben Gurion Canal, when one looks at the logistics of what would be needed to create that, it's it's insane, and that's not hyperbolic at least what was initially proposed back in the early 1960s. And so there's that aspect to it, which lends me to think that it's not a red herring, but is being given more of a possibility of materializing then I think we should give it. But at the same time, when we look at what the Zionist entity is undertaking in Gaza, and again, I must remind people, the West Bank as well, the occupied West Bank at the same time, it's not beyond them to, to undertake such a destructive plan. But then when you look at the some of the tenets of Zionism and a so-called Jewish homeland. One of the main tenets is that all the borders of such a homeland must be water borders. So right now you have the Mediterranean, you have the Jordan River, even have a little bit of the Red Sea down by Elat. If you look in the north of Israel, some have long argued this is why Israel has been trying to push into Lebanon up to the Latani River to make that a northern border. So this proposed canal would blast right through that and scupper these water border plans. But that's that's assuming that there's a diehard commitment to the tenets of foundational Zionism. And I think to a large extent there is, but it's not beyond people like Netanyahu and those closest to him, Yoav Gallant, Itamar Ben-Gavir, Bezalel Smotrich, the finance minister, although he tends to be, he is a quintessential Zionist, I would say. So I don't know. I don't know where he stands with regard to such a plan. But 
there are complications coming from the ideology of Zionism with regard to that plan. But again, with the destruction, the genocide we've seen wrought, especially since October 7, I would not put it past the allies such as they are to to undertake such a plan but how realistic do you do you think that is um it's it's a mad plan i would also ask though how realistic is it to set up ski resorts in the desert um and we're you know the Saudi Arabia already has signed on to be the host for the 2029 Asian Winter Games. They, they want they want their their city in the desert to be an outdoor ski destination, and along with this canal, they want a high speed rail system that's going to um, be a major tourist attraction. It's going to be worth billions of dollars. So. Um, to excavate this canal in the 1960s, they proposed putting 520 nukes under the desert and blasting their way with small-scale nukes um, through the desert to, to make this canal. That's insane. And then the, the plan was... Um, away for a while and now that they've they've brought it back and i think i think they're serious about wanting to do it and and look into it is it realistic to be able to to execute this plan i i don't know but i do think they're they're willing to spend billions and billions of dollars of other people's money exploring the possibility of it and and initiating it yes absolutely well michael thank you very much for looking behind that curtain and continuing to do so i look forward to the articles that are forthcoming thank you for joining me today for this conversation it's always a pleasure to speak with you despite the grim content but we must probe these dark spaces Michael Bryant, thank you very much again. Thank you for having me, Jesse. My pleasure. And that's it for me for today. Steve Hook is up next here on TNT Radio. Take care. <laughs>